This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack, and today we're on question 83. When was the book of Daniel written? Yes, indeedy, we're taking a little bit of a reprieve here from our God of God series. Initially, I thought there was just one prominent reason that I needed to take that break, and that was that this specific question dealing with when the book of Daniel was written, has an impact on how we read Daniel in light of this God of God's theology we're investigating. But as I started to look into it and research it a little bit, I realized that maybe the more pressing need here is that in recording these episodes and actually going through the process of making this podcast week by week, month by month, whatever, I kind of like to have room, space, to just kind of unhinge my thoughts a little bit. Sometimes 365 is a a really great way to do that. Uh, For instance, what am I trying to say here? If I'm just thinking to myself, if I'm doing something and I'm trying to think, I have a really hard time having a progression of thought. My mind tends to be one of these, I don't know, mechanisms that just has one thought and then regurgitates that thought over and over again. It might twist or vary itself on how it regurgitates that one thought. But it's really hard for me when I'm just sitting trying to think and I'm not writing it down or I'm not doing something productive. It's really hard for me to have a long progression of thought, you know, to go like if A, then B, and if B, then C, and then D. It's hard for me to do all those steps. So doing something like research for this podcast or the actual fleshing out and uh, recording of this podcast, it helps me have a progression of oh, this is connected to this, and I can use both of those things to make this assumption or to have this conclusion. It's a helpful tool, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And wherein I'm really enjoying and reveling in the revelations of this God of God series, those episodes have to be well-researched and they have to be pretty tight because I'm going through so much evidence and so many things are flying at me. I have to structure the episodes pretty thoroughly. So... Today's episode, much less thorough, (laughs) just kind of shooting blind, and I honestly don't have that much to say on the subject, but I came to a slightly different conclusion than I thought I would, so let's jump into it now. So I definitely have a weakness for a specific type of song. And that is the broken man coming to accept hopelessness genre of song. And if his voice is uh, crackly or weak from years of too much smoking, (laughs) all the better. For instance, there's a Nick Cave song. It actually played in the Shrek 2 soundtrack, People Just Ain't No Good. And it's like five minutes long, And it's just Nick Cave singing pretty much over and over again. People just ain't no good. I hope that's well understood. And then he goes and explains a specific situation in which he came to realize that people just ain't no good. And then probably my all-time favorite in this genre is a Leonard Cohen song, Famous Blue Raincoat. (laughs) It's just just Leonard Cohen accepting regret and remorse and emotional pain and losing a girl. But all these songs, they they have this 
tiredness attached to them. And I feel like I have this personality type, maybe you do too, where especially when I'm digging in scripture or I'm searching for truth, it doesn't necessarily have to be scripture too. In politics, sometimes I feel this way. I'm either manic and like, oh man, this, this, and this are about to happen. I can't believe it. And I'm sucking in the fumes of that exhalation. Or I'm this other side of, I'm just so tired of this and I can't get anywhere. (laughs) I really expected with this particular topic that if I ever looked down that rabbit hole, if I ever actually investigated it, my fears were going to bring me to the broken man acceptance point. Because the authenticity and dating of the book of Daniel kind of plays the two different fields of my uh, spiritual struggles right now. One is, yes, this God of Gods thing. And what's always been in my mind, and we've talked about it in brief in the God of God series and more in a couple of raw episodes, is the fear I have that that religion and Christianity in particular is something that arose over time as an evolution. And Daniel would serve as a great litmus test of it because Daniel, unlike a lot of other Old Testament books, has a lot of infused supernaturalism and a lot of conflict, I would say, between God and the spiritual realm, or at least different types of instances of this. So what we're going to see here is that there's more or less two different dates for when the book of Daniel was written. It was either written roughly around the year 536 BC. That's more or less when most people think that the Daniel of the book of Daniel died. Or scholars think that it was written around the year 164 BC. In other words, in the same few years that Antiochus IV invaded Jerusalem and plunged himself into the Holy of Holies and became the the abomination of desolation. Anyway, we'll go over this history in a moment here. So the conflict internally, especially with the evolution of Christianity thing, is that we don't see demons, we don't see supernatural forces much in the Old Testament, but then when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, we get this spring. Demons under every corner. Under every corner? <laughs> demons everywhere theology. So the critical eye says, okay, in that 400 years when there were no books of the Bible written, there's this evolution and slow acceptance of resurrection and this whole theology of the afterlife and supernatural forces and Elohim that evolves. That's troublesome for a guy like me. Not necessarily that there would be progressive revelation, that God would show us stuff in time, but that that progressive revelation wouldn't be offered in the Word of God. It wouldn't be offered in the Bible, but that it would happen during this intertestamental period where we don't have the writings. So it would be a nice counterpoint, a counterpunch to that evolution skeptical part of my brain to say, look, Book of Daniel. 400 years before that intertestamental evolution stuff. And here it is with the Prince of Persia. Here it is with some crazy prophecies that do come true. Specific political prophecies. You know, the book of Daniel's that book. Man, people just ain't no good. Shoot. When you get the weird end times crazies going, yes, they always talk about the book of Revelation, but seemingly just as much, and maybe more so because... It talks more directionally or geopolitically. You get them talking about the book of Daniel. Oh, man. In researching this, I was reminded of how crazy people are about the book of Daniel and how exploitative they're willing to be. 
Talk about having jumped to conclusions, Matt, all over the place. Oh, people love to take this book and use it for their own means. But that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, the other reason that this question is relevant to me, and that made me fear that I was going to swing towards the broken man accepts hopelessness fanfare, is because if Daniel didn't write it in 536 BC, and really it was written in 164 BC, f roughly 400 years later, then we got a pseudopigraphal book of the Bible on our hands. And inerrancy and inspiration has been a big talking point for me internally, and I've been wrestling with what is the intent of the Bible? What does the Word of God mean to accomplish for us? And how are we to use the Bible? And inspiration and inerrancy all speak to that. And multiple times in the book of Daniel, Daniel says, I, Daniel, did such and such. I was praying when... I saw this vision. If he didn't write all that, and all this, all these tales about him are written 400 years in the future, you know, spotlight there, 400 years ago, there was no United States of America. 400 years is a long time. So how could people accurately be talking about Daniel and speaking as if they are Daniel 400 years later? It's stretching. It's stretching quite a bit. And then it throws a weird angle at this inspiration thing. Let's start there as we as we talk about the book of Daniel. Uh, I took an Old Testament theology course with a professor named John Salehammer, and he was great. He published just a couple years ago, after I graduated college, uh, a long Old Testament theology book, like a thousand pages. But one of the ongoing discussions we had in the class was, what does inspiration of Scripture mean? And he was always drawing on the whiteboard stick figures, like, oh, Moses is a stick figure. And because he's inspired, he's the inspired writer of the Torah, he would draw him with a beard. So I always associate inspired writers of the Bible with beards on stick figures. But so, okay, actually, let's, let's not go fully down the inspiration trail quite yet. The book of Daniel bursts off the page for maybe two reasons. Reason number one is, as mentioned before, it's a really intriguing book. You know, you got Daniel in the lion's den... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you got all these weird, interesting insights about how life in Babylon worked and life in Persia worked. So it's an interesting historical read, but also it's really the only bilingual book of the Bible. Now, there are other books of the Bible that have some words here and there or tiny little sections written in another language, but as far as big chunks go, I believe Daniel's it. Daniel chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 3 is written in Hebrew. And then this long section, which is primarily history stuff from Daniel chapter 2, 4 to chapter 7 verse 28 is all in Aramaic. And then it picks up in chapter 8 verse 1 through the end of chapter 14, once again in Hebrew. And all that stuff in there is pretty much prophecy stuff and visions. So it's already an interesting unicorn of a book of the Bible because it's in two languages. Now there's debate whether it was originally written in two languages, but it seems like it was. Oh, additionally, makes Daniel even more intriguing, more palace intrigue, is that there are apocryphal stories about Daniel. Now these do not show up in the Hebrew or Christian Bibles, but they do show up in the Catholic Apocrypha, as well as I think some Eastern Orthodox 
versions of the Bible. Those apocryphal chapters, by the way, include dragons, or at least a dragon, one dragon, and they appear to be written in Greek, or at least the only manuscripts we have of them are in Greek, which, according to a Jewish canonization cloister from the first century AD, seems to be the reason why those chapters weren't included in the Hebrew canon, and therefore also the Christian canon. Okay, real quick history lesson here. So, nation of Israel sprouts, get King David, King Solomon, then after Solomon, Israel splits, becomes Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and I'm really bad with numbers, but I think 700s BC, Israel sacked by the Assyrian Empire, and then roughly 70 or so years later, Judah sacked by the Babylonians. Now, by this point, the Babylonians had overcome the Assyrians, so all the Jewish people were in exile in Babylon. During that time, under Babylonian rule, is when the events of Daniel take place. Now, while Daniel's in Babylon, the Babylon Empire is also sacked, or falls. And there's some confusion, I think, whether it was the Medes or the Persians that sacked Babylon. Some think it's the Medo-Persian Empire, some fusion of both the Medes and the Persians that sack it. But there seems to be a transition period after Babylon, where it's kind of in Mede rule, and then shortly after that, it is full-on Persian rule. And shortly after Daniel, we get Cyrus the Great, the great conqueror of Persia, who gives the mandate that the Jews may return back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And then once again, we have Judah established in Jerusalem that sticks around with some autonomy until the Greeks come in, overthrow Persia, and then take over Palestine lands again. And after that, the Greek transition turns into Roman rule. So really, Judah's never fully established again. And then in 170 BC, Antiochus IV, one of the Greek guys, Seleucid dynasty, comes in, raids the temple, uh, sits on Yahweh's throne, slaughters pigs there, turns the temple into a place of pagan worship, and then you get the Maccabean revolt during that time period where the Jews fight back. Then under Roman rule, they get some degree of autonomy again. Obviously, the temple becomes a place of Jewish worship again. You get King Herod, which is kind of a satrap situation under Roman rule. Then you get Jesus. Okay, that was muddy, but that's that's our time frame, right? So, let's talk about inspiration for a moment. There's kind of three ways to think about inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture, right? We who are Christians, we who believe that the Bible is the Word of God, I think, more or less, there's kind of these three ways to look at it. And two of the ways are on a x-axis, right? So, on the far right of the x-axis, inspiration is a data dump. So, what does that mean? God wants the Bible to be written. So his spirit plugs some dude into the matrix, and then that dude plugged into God's spirit verbatim writes down what God's telling him to write down. Meaning, the words you get in the Bible are directly given to the scribe who's writing them down from God. There is no direct personality involved, right? So if Moses writes the Torah, when Moses writes, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, God's saying, to Moses, hey Moses, write this down. In the beginning, the Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So that's on the far right on our x-axis. The other side of that x-axis, that plane, 
that line graph is what I'll call the Yu-Gi-Oh! I Choose You version of inspiration. I never watched Yu-Gi-Oh! I don't really know what that means, but it's more the idea that the Holy Spirit God chose Moses or chose the scribes to write these important things, but he gave that person full authority to write as they so desired. Therefore, all the limitations of that person are written down. So if that person thinks that the earth is flat, he's going to write language in the Bible that says the earth is flat, the four corners of the earth. Because that writer doesn't know that the earth is a sphere, he doesn't write that in the Bible. If that person happens to be misinformed about something, he's also going to write his misinformation into the text. So this form of inspiration is very loose because it's just saying God granted a blessing, more or less, onto a scribe, and that scribe wrote these things down with God's blessings. Doesn't mean there's not errors in them. So, obviously, you can see there's the data dump on one side of the x-axis and the Yu-Gi-Oh! I Choose You on the other side. You don't have to choose A or B. You can choose various points in between. You can say God inspired someone, and surely he would intervene so that that person didn't make substantial errors God made the person to have thoughts that are in line with the Spirit of God, that are in line with God's personhood, while that person is still using the word awesome all the time because that person just has a fascination with the word awesome, so he throws the word awesome into every other sentence. And God showed up in the burning awesome bush, and there was an awesome pillar of fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt. That would be Moses's awesome inclination, not the Spirit's awesome inclination, right? So you can choose these points all along that x-axis. The other option is to say God inspires events, right? So the Israelites going over the Red Sea, that's the inspired event. God obviously interacted, interceded into life, existence in that event, and then he lets the people freely write down that event as they recall it, as they remember it. So there isn't an inspiration in the physical writing of the event, of the of the memory. It's just God intercedes in events and he allows us to recall them. Now, obviously, with things like prophecy and that, you would have to say God speaking to the person in order to have a inerrant view of prophecy. But on the whole, you have this event inspiration idea that's separate, that's somewhat divorced from the idea of the word of God being inspired itself. So for me, I grew up always thinking, you know, if there's an error in the Bible, then you have to throw the whole thing out. If it doesn't compute, if there's mistakes in there, then, you know, how can you buy into this thing? Why would an all-loving, wonderful God allow for there to be mistakes in his only record of the stuff that he's done in life? Why would he allow us to be led astray that way? And while, in one regard, I still hold to that, on the other hand, I had this conversation with Clint Wright, who we recorded an episode a few weeks back on, and after we were recorded it, we were talking about inerrancy, and he was saying that the Bible really is the gateway for us to view all experience, to view everything, to view all information. Our epistemology goes through the Bible. So, in other words, you can't trust your own intuitions, your own observations about life, because they're all going to be flooded with sin and self-indulgence and or demonic possession. You can't trust any experience. 
so then we have to fundamentally rely on God's word. I have a hard time with that, A, because I don't see the Bible saying that, and B, because while I've gone through the process of making this show these last couple years, I'm finding that the Bible isn't safe. It's certainly not safe for non-believers, and to a large extent, it's not safe for us who believe as well. Because Aslan's not a safe lion, the Bible's confusing, and I don't think it's always written specifically for us on our 3.15 in the afternoon daily devotional. But anyway, this is just kind of word vomit right now. What I'm trying to say is I'm a little messed up. I don't know where to put my pin on the x-axis of inspiration right now. But I do know that if you throw out inerrancy, if you're saying there can be errors in the Bible, then I don't know how to read specifically like prophecy books or things that seem to state specific things. And I want to use a book like Daniel that prophesies the coming of the Greeks into the known world. I want to use that as part of my apologetic to be like, yo guys, look, here's a reason why the Bible's valid, because it was right about this. It has a better track record than Nostradamus. And I want to use those proofs for myself to nurture myself. Anyway, with Daniel, kind of all these different ideas about inspiration come to a head if Daniel wasn't written in 536 BC. Because if you open that pseudopigraphal door, pseudopigraphal being a fancy word for it wasn't written by the dude who claimed to have written it, then all of a sudden all these other books that didn't get included in the canon because they weren't written by the person that said they were written by, we have to start questioning, right? The book of Enoch, which is alluded to in Jude. Most of us agree that it's not in the Bible because it clearly wasn't written by the old man Enoch. It was written by someone generations, hundreds, maybe thousands of years after Enoch died, who was essentially envisioning what Enoch may have experienced. There's a narrative of Adam that's a pseudopigraphal book. We don't include that in our Bibles because it shows up way, way after Adam clearly was dead. It clearly wasn't written by Adam. So if Daniel's not written by Daniel, what are we doing here? <laughs> it, and it also speaks to the type of temperament that the ancient world would have had, that they didn't care about truth, at least not in the same way we do. Right, there's this narrative that a lot of people hold to that before the Renaissance or before the Enlightenment, people didn't think about truth in systematic ways. And from my experience and from what I can tell from life and history and human nature, that's just not true. People have always cared about truth. And the assumption there seems to be that the ancient world, they believed in fairy tales. They believed in fables. They weren't concerned with whether something held up to reason or not. And I think they just didn't always have the tools, the instruments to talk about these things. But they did care about reason. They did care about logic. We see that in Job, probably the oldest book of the Bible. The, the whole book is just a conversation, and it's all very rational. It's very human. It's what we do. We try to convince each other of things. And we use that using our senses and using our logic. But if everyone's just cool with, hey, I wrote this play. I mean, William Shakespeare wrote this play. Then we can't really accept anything that the society's reproducing, right? Because... They don't think logically, so we can't rely on them for information. But we do want to rely on the Bible for information, so I want Daniel to be written by Daniel. Especially when Daniel says, I, Daniel. <laughs> That's one of my worries. So, with these lists of worries, just think in your head, people just ain't no good. If any of them turned out to be true, or turn out to be true. The other thing is, if the authorship 
of Daniel is really dated to 164 BC and not 536, then why don't we include those apocryphal chapters? The chapters that include a friggin' dragon. And if we accept the chapters that include a dragon, then I think we're saying, well, I guess we're either saying that, yeah, dragons used to exist, or we're saying all of Daniel is in this fantasy realm. It's Game of Thrones, Jewish style. Thirdly, my third worry, if Daniel's written in 164 BC, then all the prophecies aren't prophecies. They're just historical rememberings. So that sucks. Fourthly, if it's in 164 BC, why should we believe any of this? Like, it, it, it's all fairy tale. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have any impact on us. Yeah, so those are my worries going into this. So, evidences for either side. There is a ton of information out there. I could not grapple with all the information. So, I don't have a lot to offer you. If you're interested in this question, go research it yourself. But, I found four pieces of information that seem to be the strongest pro-164 BC arguments, right? And I'm going to throw out the argument that the prophecies are correct, right? I believe in a god that is supernatural. So, prophecy that correctly guesses that Antiochus IV is going to come and that the Greeks are going to come doesn't bother me. I know that bothers some scholars, therefore they're looking for reasons to put the text at 164 BC. That's not my concern. But here are four things that could conceivably be a concern to me. One is the multiple languages used in the text, right? By the time of Jesus, Aramaic is what all the Jews are speaking. They're not really speaking in Hebrew that much, they're speaking in Aramaic. So the closer you get to Jesus's time, the more likely you are to get writings that are going to be holy in Aramaic. 536 BC, Jews are still speaking Hebrew, so why would it be in Aramaic? Additionally, there's some Greek words mixed into the text, Aramaicized Greek words. So how did these Greek words even get into people's languages in 536 BC? The second concern is when the Jewish people canonized the Old Testament and they put all the books of the Old Testament in order, they included Daniel in the books of writings, not the history, right? So Daniel's next to Song of Solomon and Ezra and not the, not the history books and not the other books of prophets. The rationale then is that they know that it's a later book and that it should be read because it's a book of wisdom, not a book of history. So you shouldn't take it literally, right? It's next to Proverbs and Song of Solomon, so you read it like those other books. It's a different genre. And what would the rationale behind that be besides that it can't fit into a history book category? The third thing is that there are very few references, well, there's actually just one reference, really, to Daniel in other Jewish writings before the 160s BC. After that, we get quite a few, but before 160, you know, you don't hear other prophets talking about Daniel. You don't hear other Jewish people talking about Daniel in the manuscripts we have from that time period, whether they be in the Bible or not. So, in that discussion, those who say that Daniel was written in 536 BC say, yeah, but what about Ezekiel? In the book of Ezekiel, Daniel is named. And I gotta read this first time he's named, because it's interesting. Uh, Ezekiel 14, 13, and 14. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, 
Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. So, conservative 536 Daniel people say, look, Daniel's there, written in Ezekiel. The counterpunch to that is that there's an Ugaritic old name that's roughly translated as D-N-I-L, Danil. And apparently this old Ugaritic name shows up as a wise person and super old, like 2,000, 3,000 years old. And you'll notice here in Ezekiel that Ezekiel's talking about Job and Noah, both very old, pre-Israel righteous men. So a third name, Daniel, that doesn't fit in that it would be a contemporary. Ezekiel's, you know, right around the same time that Daniel shows up. So why would Ezekiel list these two old guys and then a contemporary as a righteous man? Rather, liberal scholars say, Ezekiel's talking about some old Danil tradition that we don't really know about. And he's just using it as this old righteous man that other people would know about. More intriguingly, in my mind, is the other reference to Daniel in the book of Ezekiel. This is in the prophecy against the prince of Tyre, which is the very part of Ezekiel that is often used as a description of Satan himself. Hear this. It's Ezekiel 28, 1-3. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man, and no god, though you make your heart like the heart of a god. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself. And it goes on to talk about his wisdom. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. Now, if this is talking about Satan, it's super interesting that Daniel's listed as the epitome of someone who is wise. Anyway, the fourth rationale for why Daniel should be attributed to 164 BC is that there was a Neoplatonist pagan named Porphyry in the 300s AD, so just a few hundred years after Christ, right in the time after Constantine, when Christianity suddenly becomes the world religion, you know, suddenly becomes the big hit on the block. Here, Porphyry writes a book against the Christians. Now, we don't have that book. It was burned by the Christians in power, but we have refutations of it, and apparently one of the strongest reasons that Porphyry has against the Christians is that he says Daniel was written in the Maccabean time period, roughly 164 BC. So all the prophecies that the Christians use that they say Daniel predicted aren't true because they were written after the fact. It's the same argument we get in modern day about Daniel, but here we are, we got this Neoplatonist pagan that's already making that case in 300 AD. It's kind of crazy. Now, on to the reasons why it could be written in 536. Let's first talk about the language situation. Apparently, the style of the Hebrew relates well to the 6th century. So, Hebrew scholars can see an evolution of the language through time, and that the Hebrew that was used by the 1st and 2nd centuries BC was already looking way different than the Hebrew that was used in the 6th century. So the Hebrew lines up with the supposed time period, and apparently the Aramaic also lines up to an older-style Aramaic. There are words used in Daniel's book in Aramaic that by the year 300 apparently don't show up in any manuscripts ever again. 
You know, they're kind of like old English words that we've forgotten or just ceased to use anymore. Those words are showing up in the book of Daniel. Additionally, while the skeptics note the Greek words that are used, conservative scholars say, look, Daniel's in Persia. Persia's empire was huge, so obviously there's going to be all sorts of multicultural influences. And there's also 14 Persian words, Aramaicized, used in the book of Daniel. And those Persian words shouldn't be around by the 1st and 2nd centuries A.D. If anything, if it was in the 2nd century B.C., we should see way more Greek words, right? Because the Greeks were everywhere right now. Greek by the 3rd century B.C. is already the world language. That's the trading language. That's what everybody speaks. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek and not Aramaic or Hebrew, because everyone spoke it. It was the international language. So there should have been more Greek if it was written then. And that's why the apocryphal books are written in Greek, because they are probably written in 164 BC. That's why they're in Greek. For a long time, one of the arguments against an early dating of Daniel was because Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar's son was the king ruler Belshazzar. Problem was, none of the Babylonian records that anyone could find included a Belshazzar. So this seemed to be a false history that Daniel's remembering incorrectly, or, you know, the writer just imagines because they don't know Babylonian history. Well, apparently, in the late 1800s, there was a clay tablet that was found that included the reign of Belshazzar. So that's kind of some reinforcement there. One last thing on the language, apparently there's also some Akkadian loanwords used in the Hebrew and Aramaic text. And Akkadian, again, is a language that would have been well dead and gone by the 1st and 2nd century. The last little piece of evidence is that Josephus says that in 330 BC, Alexander the Great came to Palestine, and he comes to Jerusalem, and one of the high priests of the temple comes out of the temple and presents Alexander the Great with the book of Daniel. And Alexander likes it because the high priest says, look, our book predicts you. And apparently, Jews and Christians alike in Russia have a long tradition of naming their third child Alexander in honor of this event. So Josephus is saying, yeah, the book of Daniel is old. And it was around in the 300s, well before the Maccabean revolt, well before uh, Antiochus IV comes along. So anyway, conclusions here. This seems like a 50-50 toss-up to me. There are valid points on both sides of the table. And I really thought, I really expected that I was going to be singing the People Just Ain't No Good song or some new version of I'm a broken man accepting hopelessness. But I don't. In fact, I'm feeling pretty good because I didn't find the dagger in my heart that I was kind of expecting. And after reading more about the language thing, I'm kind of more heartened than anything else. Thinking on our inspiration axis again, if everything's just a data dump from God, you would expect a monolithic, one-language narration. But here, we have Daniel, and he's held captive by the Babylonians, and he does speak Hebrew, but now he's being forced to speak Aramaic all the time. So when he's talking about prophecies against Babylon and against Persia, he's going to speak the language of the people. But then when he's talking about the future, and he's talking about the specific nation-state of Israel, he goes back to his mother tongue, and he speaks in Hebrew. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. 
Anyway, this was not a neat and tidy episode. It's kind of everywhere. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Dante Stack, signing out. Peace be the journey.